0: Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode.
1: You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network.
2: Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
3: And I'm Amber. And hey, remember when we talked to Dr. Maddie von Beyer about tiny plants? I do. Okay, good. I was giving everyone a moment to remember. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I was there. Today, we are going to get even tinier. Um, We've got Mm. another special guest expert. Um, this time it's Dr. Kristen Roth, who studies plant micro-remains. Not macro-remains, micro-remains. Mm-hmm. So um, hi, Chris, and thanks for being on the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for
1: inviting me on the podcast.
3: Yay! Yeah, well, we are thrilled to have you here, but could you start off by telling us about the trajectory of education or fieldwork that got you to where you are today? Um, like, did you always want to do plant micro <laughs> remains, um, and, and then also, if you could tell us what you're working on these days. Yeah. So I didn't
1: always want to do plant micro remains, but I have basically always wanted to be an ar- archaeologist. Um, I think my mother tells a story back in like fourth grade. I started down the road of wanting to be an anthropologist and it's just gone downhill since then. <laughs> Uh, Rude. (laughs) Um, But in college, I really started down the archaeology road, uh, majored in classical Greek archaeology in college um, and ended up on a field project in Greece where I got to assist our archaeobotanist and learn how to set up a flotation machine and play in the dirt with all the plant bits. And that sort of started my, I don't know, interest in in plant remains and archaeology. Because um, I think one of the things is that I like archaeology because I'm interested in everything. And by studying archaeology, I can study everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's kind of the same with plants. By studying plants, I get to play in all the different kinds of archaeology. So yeah, once I got to grad school, I kind of just went tinier and tinier and tinier until I got to <laughs> plant micro
2: uh, You You very casually mentioned the site in Greece that you worked at, but it was, it was a kind of a big site it was so I started at the field school at Mycenae
1: um, um which is yeah kind of a big deal got to go to work a few days through the lion's gate looking up at the the lion staring down at me so that that was pretty cool yeah,
3: yeah whatever say. yeah and are you still <laughs> are you still working there like are you still affiliated with that project or no, are you um, elsewhere in the world yeah so I
1: did Quite a few years there in Greece. Um, And then once I was in grad school, I sort of switched focuses to working in France, um, which is where I met Anna. You're welcome. Uh, Yeah, basically Anna's fall. So switched to France and Neanderthals and did that for a while. And then right now I have a postdoctoral research position at the University of Tübingen in Germany, um, where we're focusing on a couple sites in South Africa. So I've gone also further back in time, looking at the middle and later Stone Age periods in South Africa. Okay. Are you
3: in Germany? I am not. I'm in Florida. I'm
1: sort of trapped here right now.
3: Okay. Yeah. Because pandemic (laughs) fun.
2: How, um, how long ago, like how old are the sites that you're working at in South Africa when you're not trapped in Florida?
1: <laughs> uh, we're still trying to figure that out. So, um, oh. the three sites that we're working on, um, one has had some dating done, but the two sites that we just started excavating, um, we're still waiting for some OSL dates to come back, but we're guessing some of the, the hope was maybe 200,000 years ago. Um, and we're still trying to figure out figure out, but we're looking at also maybe like 50,000 years ago, 40,000 years ago. So it's kind of that range. Oh, range. Okay.
3: Yeah.
2: okay. Cool. So you study some of the very, very tiniest types of archaeological material. Mm-hmm. So what made you, you know, you, you sort of broad gave us the broad strokes of first of all, being interested in plants in general, cause they're everywhere and then going smaller and smaller, but what, what got you hooked on particularly micro-remains, but have you always been sort of focused on plants rather than any other feature of the archaeological record?
1: Sort of. So I guess when I was applying to grad school, I kind of had two paths in front of me, and I was either interested in sort of more sort of museum archival stuff related to textiles uh, or Mm -hmm. the kind of sciencey plant road, and I clearly ended up going down that road. And I guess one of the things that drew me to... Uh, plant micro in in general, and phytoliths in specific, is that it's still kind of an expanding field, or I guess because we haven't figured it all out yet. Um, obviously, we've known about phytoliths and plant micro for quite a while. I mean, phytoliths, one of the first things that people talk about is that like Darwin scooped up phytoliths and dust on the decks of the beagle. Um, so we've clearly known about them for a while, but we're still figuring out the best ways to study them um, so that was really interesting to me was this kind of room for expansion um, and then also I really like them because we can use it to ask questions that you can't necessarily answer with other types of plant remains so um, plants can sometimes be pretty fragile or prone to destruction for a lot of things whereas with the micro remains we can They're a little more robust, so we can sort of push things further back that way, too.
3: Uh, Real quick, what are finalists? (laughs) Other than something that was, you know, on the decks of the Beagle. So could you um, go into a bit more detail for our listeners? Because, like, obviously, everybody here knows. so Obviously. Obviously. Uh, but could you um, tell us more about cool. what exactly a phytolith is? And, Phytoliths 101. Yeah, oh. and, and what kind of information archaeologists can get from them. Like, from... <laughs> just sort of like the basics to like the big picture
1: yeah so it's funny i was actually just listening to your episode on um like the green sahara yeah episode thanks for listening yeah and uh (laughs) there was a whole discussion there about like silica and how silica is in so many different things um oh yeah (laughs) yeah and so this is another place where silica is kind of in everything um so plants, as they're growing and doing their normal plant things, are taking in different kinds of nutrients and minerals and everything from the soil around them or from the groundwater, and they use those minerals for a variety of things. And so one of the things that they actually take in is dissolved silica. And so they take that silica and they deposit it in and around their cells and in the cell walls and things for a whole variety of purposes. It can help with structure in the plant um it can help keep out like diseases and pests um it can help with water regulation um, and then it can even okay. help deter uh, uh, like herbivores and things like that because it's actually so dense it can like wear down your teeth and make it uh, oh, less makes nice the plants to too crunchy <laughs> it, it yeah it's like crunchy grossness <laughs> Hmm. Um, you can even sometimes, like, if you pick a blade of grass, if you've ever, like, run your finger along the edge of a blade of grass and it kind of feels, like, sticky or spiky, mm-hmm. those are some of these, like, minerals and silica sticking out of the plant um,
2: that you can actually feel. Oh, wow. Oh, so listeners, that's like, if you want to take a moment and go outside and do that, yeah. <laughs> just pause the podcast. Yep. Oh, just so, so- normal, the grass in your plant or in your backyard probably has
1: it. So, so it's, like, plant armor? It can, exactly. It can be like. Oh my God, oh, you're blowing my mind. Oh yeah, it's <laughs> are crazy. And I mean, they, they use other minerals for this too, but um, the silica really, it has so many purposes and we're still kind of figuring out in what plant, what silica does and, and how it can change in different
3: plant species and things. Um, it's so, so much more not, than the little, the little pouches that you get in your packets of turkey pepperoni. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> or in your shoe boxes. Or, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Shows are my head. Is that <laughs> <laughs> um, so
1: the silica not all plants collect silica but a lot of them do um and some things like grasses like i mentioned they're some, some of the biggest um collectors and producers of silica um whereas like trees have other mechanisms for some of those structural things so they might not um take in as, as much silica in some ways um so as the plant's living and accumulating the silica, it builds up in the cell walls and everything. Um, and then after the plant dies, either through natural means or if someone comes and collects it, uh, that plant starts to dehydrate and that will kind of free the silica from its organic confines. Um, and it'll dehydrate and harden into these little silica kind of skeletons of the of the plant cells.
3: Okay, so it's, it's not like it, it, it doesn't, like, crumble or anything into pure silica or something. Like, just go with me here. Um, it's it, it, like, preserves the shape of those cell walls.
1: It it's, does. And so it, okay. it can either have, like, a specific shape of an actual cell or... It can be just kind of this lumpy, amorphous shape of when it's in between
3: cell walls or um, oh, okay. in another place. So it's and not actually a diagnostic. Shape. Like it's not like you look at a phytolith and you're like, I know what this came from. Like exactly. it's exactly okay. You just know uh, it came from plant.
1: And then another thing, actually, <laughs> based on what you just said, it can be kind of cool because sometimes as those cells are decaying and dehydrating, the the phytoliths can actually trap little pieces of the organic matter in them. Um, so you can oh, actually like Amber. even use vitalits for like, um, radiocarbon dating and things like that.
2: What?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And when I said like I, Amber, I meant the, the <laughs> tree, tree sap. Yeah. I didn't mean my co-host. I mean, I also get stuff stuck on me, so it's fine. <laughs> so you
3: can <laughs> We all do. Yeah, it's very relatable. Um, wow. But that would be a tiny amount of material that could be dated. It but is. Do you, so need you need a lot need- you need can a you lot, need lot of isolates to, to do that, or you do you um so you'll usually extract
1: them from sediment or um, from a vessel or something like that, and then you kind of um, uh, extract the organic matter from that. So you do need quite a
3: few, um, but it can definitely be done. Okay, so it's not like you know my days of one date pit will do it. <laughs> not <laughs> yet. Yeah. Okay. You get there. <laughs>
2: Um, So speaking of phytoliths and the kind of data that you can get Mm -hmm. from them, do you have any sort of off off the dome? Are there cases where phytolith data has provided particularly cool information about how people used to live? Just anything that maybe kind of really captured your interest while you were sort of learning the ropes of phytolith studies or even from your own work?
1: Yeah, so one of the things that I really like, as I mentioned, is that So a lot of types of plant remains, um, you know, if we, I think like on the episode that you have of tiny plant bits, talking about like carbonized remains or charcoal that can really last in the archaeological record. Um, But unfortunately, a lot of plants don't end up getting burnt or fossilized or something like that. Um, So sometimes it can be really hard to answer some questions questions about plants in the past. Um so one of the things that I really like is uh this woman called uh, Dolores Paperno who literally like wrote the book on phytoliths. Yep. <laughs> um yeah, she is amazing. Uh some of her work has focused on ancient agriculture and you know, we know a lot about agriculture in say Mesopotamia, the near east, places like that, but we also know that agriculture arose independently in places like China or the Americas. Um And those places are harder to study in terms of plants because this kind of subtropical, neotropical environment is really hard on a lot of types of plant remains. Um, So using plant microfossils like um, phytoliths, starches, pollen, all that kind of stuff has allowed us to start to answer some questions about how and when and where agriculture arose in the Americas. Um, And so we can see this whole new world of pre-Columbian cultures who are modifying their landscape and their environment in a way that uh, previously archaeologists didn't really think that they were doing. Um, And that's through identifying things like maize and squash and manioc and beans and all that kind of stuff using these kinds of um, plant microfossils. Oh, it was very cool. So awesome.
2: I think we saw, Amber, do you remember when we did a uh, recent old news, there was a little news piece about farming in the Amazon? Yeah, that um,
3: was uh, River Basin, last it was month,
2: like, I think, wasn't it yeah.
3: Gizmodo that did the
2: story <laughs> yeah. on it? Gizmodo. Yes. Gizmodo, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, there had been evidence for farming or at least modification of the land to support agricultural plants like cassava. Yeah.
3: Um way earlier than people had thought. Yeah, they did survey the like in their survey they found like tens of thousands of these little islands in the forest, uh, that would have like that they reasoned would be places where this, this sort of intensive agriculture would have taken place. And they did yeah, ground truthing for a handful soil. of them. And it's just yeah. like, Yup, sure is. Sure, <laughs> <And, laughs> sure is. So it's it's sort of like the tip of the iceberg of this like really huge um, revelation about sort of the history of agriculture in the Americas. Definitely. Yeah. So it's really, it's so cool.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So Chris, you're really in an area of archeology span where things can still be totally rewritten, which is very, very cool. Yeah. That's exactly one of
1: the things that I love about it because it is. um, So yeah, if you think about agriculture, you know, we think about, obviously we think about the seeds of plants as the things that, or, you know, or charcoal wood kind of things as the things that we see in the archaeological record. Um, But if if you think about the process for agriculture, especially in a place where it's not, you know, traditional like wheat or barley, something like that, um, the process for what you're doing, how you're planting things, how you're harvesting it, how you're processing, you know, how you process maize or how you process a squash is totally different. Um, And so it's pretty cool to see things like the starches and the phytoliths be used to show us all those different parts of the process that were pretty much invisible before. Um, I know there's also been some great work done on like rice processing and harvesting um, in China using, oh, using phytoliths and, and plant micro-means. So um, it's pretty cool to see these different plant
3: bits that are usually um, invisible in the record. Oh, Speaking of plants and their <laughs> bits in the archaeological <laughs> record, do you have a favorite archaeological plant? We asked Dr.
2: Von Beyer this. So, you know,
3: and like I, continuity. It sort of was um, a bit of a pleasant surprise that she had one.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, I was, I've been thinking about this uh, <laughs> now and trying to figure out what I would categorize as my favorite archaeological plant bit. And I think it's also kind of tied to this question of like, why am I interested in phytoliths? And then also, like, why am I interested? and plants in the past. Um, And so I think my answer would be there's these crazy plant remains at the site of Cebudu in South Africa.
3: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: um, Where essentially it's this cave site and they found these layers, sometimes like a centimeter thick, of plant remains in this, you know, Middle Stone Age site. And they're trying to figure out what the plant remains were used for. And so they used a combination of phytolith analysis and uh, some soil micromorphology to look at these more in depth. And they found that these, you know, between, I don't know, like 60 and 70,000 years ago, um, these anatomically modern humans were collecting plants from near the river, bringing them all the way back to the cave and laying down these matting or these like bedding sites. And it's some of the earliest evidence that we have for humans making, um, these beds, making their beds. Yeah, exactly. And then the even cooler thing is that, so we know people use plants for all kinds of things. So building, eating them. Um, uh, but we also use plants as medicine or as like a deterrent mm-hmm. or something like that. And so there, there's some tantalizing evidence at Sabudu that, that there's this specific kind of plant um, called a cape laurel that they found in some of the very earliest layers at the site. And this is like a super aromatic plant that's used a lot of the times in traditional medicine, like even today.
3: Um, and it can be used to kill insects. It's so like, it, it's like bay leaf. So you put bay exactly. leaves in your, cab, in your pantry and it keeps bugs away because it's exactly. another type of laurel. You do? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I put
2: bay leaves in my pantry, but that's because they're there and I. No, if you them. have like loose bay leaves,
1: you can I'd also play. if you have like if you're trying to store sweaters or yarn or something, um, you can throw a couple bay leaves in there and it'll keep.
2: Oh, it's like mothballs. Yes, but it smells better. Huh? Yeah. Well, yeah. Anything smells better than mothballs. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but yeah, so it looks like these early modern humans were like using their all-natural mothballs to try and do some pest repellent. at their Wow. Site. And I just think that's really cool. Like looking at something that's 70,000 years ago and we can see this like specific, you can just see it so clearly. Someone coming into the cave, we're setting up our nice bed near a fire. I'm going to make it smell nice and keep the bugs away. And like, I just think that's such a cool moment in
3: history to be able to see. It's also very
2: humanizing.
3: Yeah. (laughs) It's a great point of connection.
2: Yeah. Because I also don't want bugs in my bed. Totally. (laughs) I, a human being.
3: I don't want that. (laughs) No, no, thank you. Well, and like if you're thinking about, you know, an analogous experience for for us would be like going camping, like something where you would be sleeping on the ground and like there's an entire industry for like pest repellent. And so you're just like, I get it. Like this is exactly. <laughs> Wake up,
2: sheeple. Just use bay leaves.
1: Yeah. Well, especially being in Florida where we're surrounded by super oh intense God. bugs all the time. I'm like, Yeah, what can I rub on myself before I leave the front door? So You just shake a a bay
2: bow at them. Yeah. <laughs> it repels evil and bugs.
1: And bugs. In neighbors. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, in this time of social distancing, that's what we all need. Exactly. And actually, that is where the phrase to keep someone at bay comes from. Ah. It comes from yeah, because um, bay laurel, in fact, was viewed as apotropaic, as sort of casting out evil. And so to keep someone at bay, uh, often bay leaves were hung above doorways or sort of in the house uh, to sort of ward off bad things. I love
3: how we have just become like the snake eating its own tail of nerdy facts. That's fine. <laughs> we're, we've achieved our final form. The fact
2: Level up. <laughs> Aw, who wants a fact t-shirt? I do. All right. Uh, while I come up with that design, listeners, we're going to take a very quick ad break and then we'll be right back. <laughs>
1: Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today.
2: And we're back. We've still got Dr. Kristen Roth here with us, thank goodness, because Amber and I certainly don't know anything about this. Um, so Chris, it seems like from what you've told us that phytoliths are this fantastic resource for archaeologists, but like any archaeological material, there you know it comes with some caveats. So before our listeners get too excited and start scooping up handfuls of dust to answer all their burning questions, what are some some cautionary tales? For, for analysis with phytoliths. Well, I still suggest
1: scooping up handfuls of dust for phytoliths. Yeah, always. always. But, <laughs> um, well, well, like Amber kind of alluded to um, a few minutes ago, as the plants are growing and making their phytoliths, they're not necessarily doing it in, in perfect little, easily identifiable blobs every time. Um, you, you mean they don't like- spell out the words I am? <laughs> A dandelion. (laughs) I really wish they did. But I think you might remember um, some discussion of diatoms, which are also made of silica and also sort of these little silica skeletons. And Mm -hmm. they have these beautiful, regular shapes that show up super nicely. Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, And I wish phylos were like that, but they are sadly not. (laughs) Um, So some plant species make very nice, easily identifiable phytoliths that you can look at the phytolith and say, yes, this is from a banana or from maize. Um, But more often than not, plants in the same family will make similarly shaped phytoliths. So we might be able to look at a phytolith and say, this came from a grass. Uh, We might be able to look at it and say, this came from a grass that's adapted to growing in a cooler, wetter environment, but I'm not going to be able to look at it necessarily and say that came from this specific grass species. Um, So that's one issue is is specificity. Um, And then the other, it's both a blessing and a curse is one plant species or one specific plant will make multiple types of phytoliths within itself. Oh. Um, so it could have plants in the inflorescence, or it could have phytoliths in the inflorescence. It could have them in the leaves. It could have them in the stem. And then those will all be different shapes. The what? The infl- What? I'm sorry. In the uh, flowering part. Or the Thank seeds. you.
3: Yeah. <laughs> oh! Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that's that's me putting it together etymologically. <laughs> Inflorescence. In yeah. The flowering. Yeah. So but yeah. Not, not fluorescence. No, not it's... yeah,
2: that's what I thought too. And I was like, what part of a plant glows like a light bulb? Yes,
1: it's only in the shiny part.
2: <laughs> yeah. So yeah, phytoliths, incredible resource. Not the answer to everything, as it turns right. out. So we
1: kind of use, we'll do a few more things like maybe doing indices so we can compare some of those different shapes. um, Or we look at suites of shapes of the different filists to say, oh, it's more likely to be, um, we can look at like dynamics of grassland versus woodland um, or sort of uh, landscape level change like that. um, Or... Uh, I mean, it is helpful in terms of agriculture because you can look at, so we tend to harvest the inflorescences. Um, So Mm -hmm. if you see a lot of those kinds of phytoliths, you know, we're looking at maybe storage. Whereas if you're seeing more leaf and stem phytoliths, maybe we're looking at more processing, something like that. So it can be hard if you're just looking at it with no control, but if you're looking at it within context, it can be helpful.
0: As with everything in archaeology context.
3: (laughs) So when you're doing this, it's not you're not getting like a sort of manifest of what was growing here. You're not saying like in this environment, we know that we had these three types of, of of grasses growing. And then we have this that would have been like this domesticate. And then they've got these trees like you, you aren't sort of painting a picture of like the flora environment. You are, you're looking more at like ratios of like, if this were a, a wooded environment, you'd see, a higher incident like so you're not you're not like diagnosing like actual like this um, type of plant both. Type i would say plant. we're
1: kind of more we're we're doing impressionist strokes in a lot of oh, ways yeah. <laughs> um you know so sometimes at a site especially if you you know you know you're working on an agricultural site in and- the Near East, right? We already kind of know some of the species that probably would have been there and that can help us narrow it down a lot better. Um, And then in those regions where we do kind of know more about uh, what could have been there, people are doing some amazing things with like computer programs and digital imaging and, and morphometrics to like measure and map the size and shapes of the the surface texture on phytoliths. And so that can actually like help you differentiate between specific kinds of domesticates and that kind of thing. Um, but if you're pushing it back further in time or to a region where we might not know as much what could have been there, um, it is a little bit more broad strokes of, okay, you know, so I'm in South Africa, we're looking at, well, it would have been more like savanna or grassland, or we see more wooded plants
3: something like that okay and then um uh, and then also is it something where you can look you're you're getting a sense for the site as a whole or if you're if you're doing so if you're doing like flotation of sediments pulled from like different parts of a a single site would you be able to say like oh well over here like clearly there was some like gardening happening or like (laughs) this must have been like more of a like a place where plants would be processed before going to the, the area that had like the hearth in it for cooking. Like, would you, would you be able to get a sense of like, there are no plants, like there's no plant remains over here. This must've been something else, something else, like something that would have been like sealed off from the outside or, you know,
1: right. I think you can kind something. of use it for a lot of different things. And I, my cautionary thing about phytoliths or plant, well, any kind of micromains in general, is that you can't really do them in isolation. Um, Because we're at such a focused microscopic level, it's too easy to kind of get, you know, you're just sitting there with your microscope counting your phytoliths and you kind of forget the big picture, which can then make it hard to interpret. So you want to, you know, as a phytolith analyst or something coming into a site, I kind of think about the overall research questions And then based on what we want to know as a group, we can target it to those different questions. So you might think about we could sample along a whole sediment uh, profile to look at like larger scale change through time and sort of bigger dynamics of what's being brought into a site, what's not, um, and then how it might change in terms of the environment. Or you could do a little more sort of synchronic sampling where you're looking at different areas of the site at the same time to say, you know, yeah, plants were being used over here or processed over here or stored over here. and so you can use it for both sorts of things. And then it's always best when paired with some other kind of analysis. So maybe you're working with a macro macrobotanist who is like, oh yeah, we have a cache of burnt grains over here, but we're trying to figure out where they were processing the, the plant remains. Um, or maybe you want to work with the site geologist to see, okay, well, we know at this point there was a river near the site and then we think it goes away. Can we pinpoint when the environment changed to see... Um, you know, when when the the geological dynamics changed
3: as well. Okay, great. No, that's really helpful because I think that um, it's easy to be introduced to work like yours and think that like, oh, we're just going to bring, like we're going to bring Chris in and she's going to do her thing and then we'll see what she comes up with in terms of like, here are <laughs> your plants. And then like they can say, it. but you have to actually like be working You're part like, of the team. Of in concert yeah. with with the like other, other specialists and the excavators and, and framing like, what is the research question? Because you can't like, it sounds like it's impossible to sort of feel like this is, this is plants (laughs) like writ large. Like you actually have to. You can,
1: uh, you know, I've, I've worked on some projects before where someone's like, I have these 15 samples. Can you look at them and see if there's stuff in them? And it works and like, yeah, you can look at them and and say something about it. uh, But the quality of, of data and interpretation that you're going to get by actually being integrated into the research questions um, is, is so much higher. Um, And I, I think that about not just by list, but about a lot of different kinds of
3: archaeological data. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. Um, Okay. Well, that's, that's enough of me grilling you on (laughs) on that. Um, But, so speaking about just sort of your excavation experience or just your field experience, like you don't have to be like digging a hole, um, <laughs> yeah. like you've worked in all kinds of amazing places like Mycenae um, and you're like working very cool places right now and with very cool materials. Do you have a favorite fieldwork story that is fit for an All ages audience? <laughs> it yeah, can be I mean, an embarrassing been,
2: one with me if you want
1: yeah, i was thinking about that actually so because i do have a few <laughs> uh, yeah i mean i've been so incredibly lucky for all the different places i worked um started working in greece and then also got to work in italy and a couple places in france and now south africa and they're all amazing in different ways um yeah, I have one of my favorite memories is in France when we essentially had a discussion with the people that were in charge of the dig as to how easy it was to make fire. Hmm. So ah. the guys running the dig went out and got like, a here's how to make fire like a prehistoric person kit for children, <laughs> in which they sell what they sell it at a lot
2: of the tourist shops. So so. Uh-huh. Some context. This is at the site of La Ferrisi, working with a team led by, among others, Harold Dibble and Paul Goldberg, who Mm -hmm. was both of our... He was briefly my advisor, but he stayed Chris's advisor, Um, mostly because I switched to fauna. And then Paul was like, I don't know what to do with that. (laughs) Um, And they have... So basically what happens in the Neanderthal record of the of Southwest France in the Middle Paleolithic is that during um, warmer and wetter climate phases when you would have more fuel plants on the landscape, you see plenty of evidence for Neanderthals using fire. Mm-hmm. In the cooler, drier periods, for whatever reason, <laughs> that evidence for fire goes away Bye-bye. a lot. Yeah, it, it... There's very little evidence for Neanderthal use of fire. And so... There's this discussion, and uh, Harold and Paul et al. are very firmly on one side of this discussion about whether Neanderthals sort of kept the ability to make fire but just didn't, or some populations had the ability to make fire, some didn't, or nobody had the ability to make fire and there were fewer lightning strikes on the landscape that would create harvestable natural fires
3: right so the and idea is, like is use versus creation like yeah, or control sparking yeah, yeah control okay yeah
1: and this is like a huge debate it's a, that yeah, it's a, is still raging in in paleolithic archaeology a hot um, debate as it were a heated yeah one. there's some really interesting evidence for both sides and it's really complicated um and so yeah during one probably wine fueled yeah night there's a lot of in wine france. in france go figure yeah Gigantic, like, multi liter boxes of wine. Um, for the crew. Just th- that was like table wine for the for like crew personal Not like multi liter <laughs> Yeah. Um, it wasn't the Capri Sun. We got into this discussion about how easy it was to make fire or not. And basically, I think Harold or Dennis asked us, Well, have any of you tried to make fire before? And, you know, not. here and there, some of us were Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, whatever. We've all tried, but not with those specific methods. So, yeah, they went out to a tourist shop, got us a, a make fire for kids kit. And then, and you uh, know, for kids, to, <laughs> start fires. <Yep. laughs> like 10 of us sat there trying to make fire and we're all like sweating and <laughs> running and
2: screaming.
1: And we uh, we made smoke, but no fire. So,
2: yeah. So it was a couple methods, right? Because somebody made, I think probably Dennis right, made was- a. Bow drill. Bow. Yep. There was a bow, and then we also tried like sparking it, and yeah. It was with um, we had like an iron pyrite and then some flint, mm-hmm. and just like hitting them together. <laughs> like, where is spark? Why?
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah it turns out uh, we would die. Yeah. In the, in so the you, the know, you just have to wait for a lightning strike. Yeah. yeah. Just get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, I was yeah. also thinking too about the um, the tiny plant bits
1: episode was making me think of when I was working in Italy, um, and we were staying in this little tiny town called Tornarecchio, and we lived in a school, like a middle school or elementary school, um, while we were digging there, and it was a field school, so we had college students, grad students, all that kind of thing, and and, uh, it rained like nonstop for an entire week, and so we couldn't go into the field, we couldn't actually dig, and we had to figure out things for the field school students to do, and so I was there as their sort of like environmental archaeology person. And there was quite a large backlog of heavy fraction from another paleoethnobotanist who had worked there, um, that was just being stored in the school, uh, and no one had had time to look at it. And it was just these, you know, cases and cases of bags of dirt essentially that needed to be set, up, um, needed to be sorted through. And so during this week of no digging, we had all of the field school students set up in like the gym of this school looking through these little piles of rocks for seeds or artifacts (laughs) or bones or anything. And I can remember one day where I went out to go check on something in another room and I came back and they had come up with this game where they all had paper plates of the, the, the heavy fraction in front of them and they would go three, two, one. And they would all face plant into the <laughs> pile of rocks. And then they would lift themselves back up and whoever had an artifact <laughs> or a plant remain stuck to their forehead won. <laughs> and they were keeping score of this and then they would buy each other beer based on who had won.
2: <laughs> so, so I think dumb. I totally drove them crazy. <laughs> God Yeah. uh, Things that archaeologists come up with to entertain themselves (laughs) during uh, less exciting moments in the field are um, a thing of wonder and beauty. (laughs) Definitely. I have I have one story that involves you and plant bits, but it also Uh involves a wild boar. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Speaking of experimental archaeology, uh, I, was this the first year that you were at La Laferesie? I think it was, yeah. Yeah, so um, as part of an experiment, so Harold Dibble's son, Flint, is mm. also an archaeologist, and he's great on Twitter. If you want to follow Flint Dibble on Twitter for lots of sort of archaeological Twitter threads and really fun explanations of things, he awesome. is a zooarchaeologist with animal remains, and he's interested in... Various things having to do with the the cooking and eating of animals. And so he somehow found a cellar of wild boars in southwest France. I don't <laughs> know. somehow isn't there there are people who sell wild boars. In yeah, it's like a France. farm was, of wild yeah, boars, which yeah, yeah. is confusing.
3: Well, oh, they, okay. they were You're sort of free like range. A purveyor, I was yes, just uh, like, yes. oh my god, they were in someone's basement. <laughs>
2: no, <laughs> yes. Yeah. well, they were feral hogs in somebody's basement. No, no, this was yes, a purveyor. That's a much better word than farmer, <laughs> of wild boars, and uh, we got one. And mostly the crew dug a six-foot pit in the field <laughs> behind Harold's French dig house. And uh, filled it with cobbles from the river, (laughs) and then laid fire, built a big old fire on top of those cobbles, and then let it burn down to coals, and then put more rocks on top to heat it, and then you, Chris, and um, a couple of other people foraged wild herbs because Mm -hmm. they're all over there. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) they're all over the place in the French countryside, and so filled the wild boar's uh, sort of internal cavities with herbs and lowered it down into the pit (laughs) and covered it up. And we all went to sleep in our tents with the beautiful porky smells wafting. Um, And then the next day at dinnertime, we dug the thing up and butchered it with stone tools and it was pretty delicious. And then Flint Flint took the bones and buried them to sort of finish defleshing them. And they're still there as far as I know. Yeah, I think so. We kind of lost yeah, that the location. was an
1: unexpected experience because um, fortunately we had an Italian there who was somewhat more experienced with cooking large animals of that nature than most of us were. And so she recommended some things where we, you know, I essentially never figured I'd be arm deep in a wild boar, but um, we, never we think stuffed it with be, a variety but... of plants and fruit <laughs> and things and then put garlic in it. And yeah, it was it
2: was pretty good. I wonder what those bones are up to. I, don't really <laughs> I think they kind of got, got lost. So. Yeah, they did. They <laughs> did. we I, I remember they got plotted in with a total station. So in theory, there are geospatial coordinates for that wild boar somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep going. Um, if our listeners wanted to take a deeper dive into phytoliths and or micro in general, do you have resources that you can recommend as kind of a baby steps way of getting into studying them. Yeah. So there's a couple, um, I can send you some links to put maybe in the show notes or something. Yeah, please. Um,
1: I'm putting together an introductory class right now. And so I found some great, easy read through things that people have put together about finalists. So if you Google finalists, there's something called on, um, Environmentalscience.org that does just a really nice run through of what phytoliths are. And then also, if you really want to do a more in depth dive, I think I mentioned earlier, Dolores Paperno has a book called Phytoliths, and it's called something like a, a comprehensive guide for archaeologists and paleoecologists. And it's really great because it really covers absolutely everything in a very clear way um, from how to sample for them, how to process them, how to analyze them, and then also a bunch of amazing case studies. So it's a really good overall view of phytoliths, um, and it also includes other things about how to combine them with different kinds of microarchaeological methods. So I would highly recommend that.
2: Cool. Yeah, we will be we will happily link to anything you provide us with
3: in the in the show notes for people to dive into. Yeah. Um, and so we've spent a little bit of time talking about um so doing things doing things at archaeological sites <laughs> <laughs> how do archaeology do whether it's it's um, excavating or um, going through uh, materials that have been excavated or sometimes in your face <laughs> <laughs> um but what's the weirdness <laughs> when anna was like what questions do you have and I was like just, trying to go with like the first thing that came to mind, which was like, what's the weirdest thing she's ever found? And then my, my next thought was like like a snake in her mailbox. And I was like, no, then we gotta be do down. That. Um, that would be so, terrible. <laughs>
2: what? Especially since she lives in Florida.
3: Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> it could happen.
2: Well, it
1: in that vein, I think one of the most horrifying things I ever found was came to sight one day in Greece and found a giant wasp and a giant spider oh. having like a death match in my trench. So No, what? thank you. That was not good. At that point, I would go home.
3: I thought about it. I quit. It.
1: Yeah, that was not fun.
3: What? So, yeah. Um, That's, but. That, okay. Well, Okay. I just like need a moment to press that's yeah. Oh that it's, is truly we wild. had giant centipedes,
1: we had um yeah
3: no. we <laughs> had scorpions, we had wasps,
1: all the things. Um we also I guess maybe one of the weirder things I've ever found is just like a solitary human tooth.
2: <laughs> we, you, do,
1: really we do lose them, you
2: know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: so like just a solitary adult human tooth was kind of strange. Yeah, um yes. Just hanging out. Yep. Just there? Just there, just in the middle of a room. And we're like, did someone get punched in the face? I don't know. Um, And then one of my favorites, though, is we called, we found these um, also in Greece. We would find all these little animal clay figurines. And they make a ton of them of horses and cows and, and all kinds of things. And we found one that clearly at some point was supposed to be a cow um, or I guess a bull because it had horns and the horns and all four of its legs had been broken off at some point. Um, so we called him Stumpy. So.
2: <laughs> I I hope like I know that those little sticky outy bits could have been broken off, you know, while the, the <laughs> artifact was sort of in the ground, you know, post-depositionally, but I really hope that it was just a treasured little figurine that just got dropped a bunch of times until someone was finally like, look. <laughs>
3: it's going away. <laughs> yeah, it, it's
2: got nothing. <laughs> yeah. Stumpy. Oh. <laughs> Poor Stumpy. <laughs> oh, oh, that's what? really cute. That... Are you still thinking about the wasp?
3: I'm still thinking about the tooth. That's very poignant. Yeah. Aww.
2: I think we also found like um,
1: the end, like a fingertip bone as well in that same room.
3: What?
2: yeah well it's okay so that maybe there were there was there were some partial human remains there yes. that just w- otherwise went away and otherwise and what you found were these two very incongruous well, bits thinking
1: too about about the context a little more um that was at the the lower town in mycenae where there was um we ended up discovering that the the course of the river was different than what we thought it was. And so it had gone through part of the site. We had, um, I think there was an Iron Age burial that had gotten truncated by some other buildings. So e- while in the area we were digging, none of that was expected. There are processes by which those could have ended up there. Yeah. But yeah. it is disconcerting to just be digging and find a, a branch Seemingly one.
3: I mean, I'm also bringing a lot to this, this anecdote because my team my my, uh, my day job like they have a virtual happy hour on fridays mm. and the time like like office chat is even weirder like on zoom and they were talking about multiple people have lost teeth while flossing oh. and so i just excuse was like, me what i know oh, no. that's kind I of know. the point
2: of flossing is to help retain your teeth. i don't know what they're flossing
3: wrong i think, the wrong. <laughs> I think uh, they're yeah f- i don't like that it it it, it it got so weird, so fast, <laughs> and I'm just imagining, like here in my scene, somebody flossing and being like, "Oh, oh, oh, no!" <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: you never know.
3: Oh never, man, but never knows. Amber, I have a strategy for you
2: for those online happy hours. Decline them. <laughs> That's one. <laughs> but if you have to go, I saw this. Uh, a teacher friend posted this, and one student named on the Zoom meeting, named himself reconnecting dot, 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 and just (laughs) left his screen black with reconnecting dot, dot, dot as the name in order to not participate in that day's classes. (laughs) So if you need that as an option, it's there. Oh, (laughs) God. It was just ingenious. Yeah. Well, while we all process (laughs) all of that, Wasps and teeth and stumpies, oh my. <laughs> Let's take another quick ad break and then we'll be back.
0: Hey fans of archaeology, head over to com slash shop and click the link to our tea public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archeo swag. Chris Webster here to tell you about one of our affiliates, Timeular. That's T-I-M-E-U-L-A-R. Whether you work from home or can go to the office or even to the field, Timeular is an app and if you want it, a physical device that helps you track your time down to the minute. Have a hard time separating your work-life balance? Set a weekly goal for tracked work hours and stop when you hit that goal. It's right in the app. So support the APN and finally start accurately tracking your time by heading to arcpodnet.com forward slash That's arcpodnet.com forward slash timular to get on track today. Hey, archaeology fans, Chris Webster here. That last ad and this one were just heard by over 4,000 fans of archaeology and history. Do you have something you'd like to sell them? From job postings to products and services, podcast advertising works. Through our unique hosting service, we can play your ad for a short window of time so your customers aren't hearing something that's old two years from now. We can also make your advertising budget go further because we charge by the download, not by the episode. So if you want 10,000 people to hear your ad, that's what you're going to get. Our system allows us to target countries and zip codes, so you get exactly the audience you desire. If you'd like to hear more, contact our advertising manager, Madison, at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. She's super cool and waiting for your call with a media kit and some sweet, sweet metrics. So that's Madison at advertising at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Remember, podcast advertising works because you're listening to this literally right now. And thanks for not skipping.
2: We're back. And now we come to the part of the show where we ask every guest the same two questions. And usually the answers we get are very different. So I guess I'll start. What is, Dr. Kristen Roth, the best or your favorite thing about archaeology? This is such a huge question. I know.
1: I I have like 15 answers to it. But I think it kind of boils down to what I said earlier, but in even more of a, I don't know, fluffy way. Of, I love the connections that you can make in archaeology, and I I love being able to sit here as a person in 2020, and have a moment thinking about what someone did 200,000 years ago.
2: That's just to lose a tooth,
1: (laughs) right? Yeah, if you you know the day you lost a tooth, or um, the day yeah your favorite figurine got put in the ground, or um, you know you put your your weird anti mosquito plant bits down. It's just
3: improved everyone, right?
1: (laughs) It's just crazy to me to be able to think about that depth of time. And then that's still something that we can relate to happening. And that's just kind of a magical feeling to me. So I like being able to have those kind of feelings on a fairly regular basis. I think it's really Mm -hmm. special and not something you get necessarily with other, um, other disciplines. So I feel really lucky to be able to do that.
3: It's oh. a cool job. Mm, it is. Um, and so if you could be a fly on the wall or perhaps a wasp fighting <laughs> a spider <laughs> so, on the wall of yeah. um, uh, for any uh. moment <laughs> for, for any moment in the past, whether it be sort of from history or prehistory or sort of within the discipline itself, um, what would you choose?
2: Another big question. Sorry. No. Yeah. Not
1: sorry. Um, I think I would probably have to go back to what kind of sparked my love of archaeology in the first place, which was ancient Egypt. I can think of, I can remember, like, standing in the Field Museum with my family when I was growing up, looking at their ancient Egypt exhibit. Mm-hmm. And so if I could go back to actual ancient Egypt and just, I don't know, soak it Spoke up, around. that would be... Yeah. Just run around and touch things. Hang on, Hang on. <laughs> you understand me? Yeah, I mean, I tried to, I tried to like teach myself hieroglyphics at like in eighth grade, and Middle Egyptian, and it turns out that's pretty difficult. So, right, um, right. yeah, I know. You have a hieroglyph <laughs> t- tattoo. I do.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: So yeah, I think that would be my thing. Is I would just want to go and kind of soak up some atmosphere in ancient Egypt.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Get that back to your nice. roots. Yeah. Your intellectual roots. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to (laughs) say it.
2: Chris, thank you so much for not only regaling us with the very best and most horrifying (laughs) of stories, but uh, teaching us about phytoliths and and what what they can do, what they can't do, and and what they are. Um, If people wanted to find you and maybe some of your work, where could they do that? So the best way to find my work would be on academia.edu or ResearchGate. You can just Google me
1: and access to to my papers and my research. you um, there if you could all just tell
3: academia.edu
2: you. to stop sending me emails.
3: I would also like that. That would be wonderful. <laughs> well, so maybe we'll go through you, research. thank you for doing that. This is something that I think about regularly is like how great it is that people Yeah. Because it's like you don't make just a little lens into like the publishing industry. Like you don't make money publishing your like your journal articles and like getting your research out there like and this is and this is a way for other researchers or just you know like your parents like just people to access (laughs) like these um your work that's usually behind like really high paywalls and so this is a really great way to um, democratize the, the research so thank you
1: thank you no, thank it's, you it's, it's for really putting important. your work up on
3: ResearchGate and academia.
1: Yeah, I had a few months in between graduating with the PhD and getting a job where I didn't have access to anything. And so Oof. it is a topic that is near and dear to my heart, too. Yeah. More access to that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, and as podcasters see, who
2: have infrequent access to things. <laughs> totally. Uh,
1: but yeah, if you want to see pictures of plants and probably cats, you can also find me on Instagram at Crisco19. All right. Huh. So thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
3: This is, I've learned a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. And I'm sorry. And you're welcome. <laughs> yes. Perfect. Thank you. And I forgive you. <laughs> and you're welcome. <laughs> Excellent.
0: This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective.
1: This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
0: Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archeological education and outreach.